This is Soul Over the Bones, a podcast for rewilding by Liz Glenn. In this week's episode, I am joined by Reagan Rios of Healing Through Holism, who is self-described as a matriarchal medicine woman. In this episode, we discuss sex positivity through the lens of shared experience. It was an inspiring conversation that I hope all of you will benefit from. Please enjoy. I am so glad that you could join me for an interview. I'm thrilled that you reached out because even before you reached out, I was thinking of all of the different perfect candidates for a conversation on this podcast. And you were like, top of the list. Your story perfectly embodies exactly what I'm trying to capture on this podcast, which is rewilding and a return to this wildish nature and embodiment and empowerment of women. So I'll have you go ahead and do a little intro and include how you're related to me. (laughs) Okay. My name is Reagan Rios. Uh, Liz and I are related through my brother, who she was previously married to. They're no longer married, but um, I still consider her my sister. So we still hang out. We're still on really good talking terms and we go to each other with different things and we have fun together. And who I am, I was just thinking about this like last night or the day before, you know, like we talk so much about like what we do, what our roles are. But then I was like, but who am I? Like, who am I as, as an individual, as a human? And So I was thinking about that and I am wildly passionate about helping women come back home to their bodies. And I am really excited by the little sunshine moments. That's what I call them in my life where no matter how hard a day has been, like usually there's like one little spark that happens in life in your day to day. And it's like, oh, that's what like sparks the the living joy in you. And so I'm a seeker of sunshine moments. Um, mm, I love that. And I mean, I, I love food. <laughs> I'm a foodie. Like that's part of who I am. Like to my core is I love experimenting in the kitchen and um, have found a lot of like joy in creating in that way, because I don't really remember anything like bad happening in the kitchen, you know, other than like burning water when I was a teenager, but um, water. <laughs> I burnt water. I didn't know it was a thing. And then like, if you leave, well, I guess it's technically like burning the pan, like all of the water evaporates out of it. And then you're like heating an empty pan. So that technically counts as burning water. I was going to say, I've <laughs> never heard of that. I didn't even know that was possible. Yeah. So burning water. But then I was like, once I knew it was a thing, I was like, okay, so I can't do that anymore. And then from a professional standpoint, along the same lines, like I love welcoming women back home into their bodies. I feel like there has been a major disconnect in how women understand their bodies. I mean, even on a biological level, I just in the past four or five years really started to learn how to track my cycle, how to track my discharge. If my cycle's irregular, like you can still read where your body's at in the fertility cycle and your energy and your hormone cycles by tracking other symptoms that your body is expressing. And so my biggest goal is like to help people understand how their body is talking to them. Because when you have trauma in your life, you don't just let it go. Like if, if it's unprocessed, it's trapped somewhere in your body, right? Your body's going to tell you, and it's going to talk to you either through physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain. And so my goal is to help people kind of 
become aware and discover who they are through addressing the pain, really like taking it head on and learning how to understand the way that their body is talking to them so that they can can learn how to love it, like nurture it like a little baby. Cause if a baby's crying, you're not just like, oh, it's fine. (laughs) Right. Like it's communicating with you. This child is communicating with you that it needs something. And so if your body's crying out to you, then it's, it's your responsibility to learn how to take care of it. And women and men, humans in general, we just haven't been taught how to take care of our bodies and to listen to them, really honor them. And so that's one of my biggest goals is to teach people how to honor their bodies by listening to them, learning how to listen to them, which requires a lot of what used to be considered selfishness, Yeah, taking time for yourself, taking time to understand yourself, taking time off of the patriarchal nine to five job. And it doesn't sit right with a lot of people because it's been conditioned for so long. But when you really start to honor yourself, you're teaching the next generation that they can do the same. And then it just creates generational and ancestral healing. So that was a long spiel, but mm-hmm. <laughs> that's no, I what I like to do. I like to help people experience that generational healing. And I think this is so important how when I ask you who you are, you are going beyond just what you do. You're going beyond just what your work is like. And, you know, if I ask somebody who they are, a lot of times their answer will be, I'm a mother, Mm -hmm. I'm a wife, I'm a whatever. And that's great and all, and we can identify as those things. And I don't think there's anything wrong with those things, but to be able to say, this is who I am as a person outside of how I am related to other people or how I relate to other people who I care for, what it is I'm doing and who I actually am and what I'm passionate about. I think that's really important to understanding ourselves and to sort of shaping the society the way that we want it to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like when you ask somebody like, how are you? And everyone is always good. Fine. Yeah. It's just, we have these like pre-programmed acceptable Mm -hmm. answers that we feel are digestible, that we feel are acceptable, where I want to know how you actually are. If I'm asking how you're doing, like, tell me what's terrible in your life and don't shy away from that. Tell me what's awesome. Tell me what you're celebrating. Tell me what's going on in your life and actually fully experiencing your emotions and fully Mm -hmm. experiencing and accepting your experience, your lived experience and sharing that with people to create more of a communal tribal life instead of just isolating ourselves and saying, Oh, I'm fine. Just gloss over this sort of interaction or whatever. So I love that you touched on lots of different facets and aspects to who you are. It's interesting to people to know when I say that I have a sister and, and that's you and right. that's not technically related anymore by marriage, but a lot of people, I think with divorce end up assuming that there's bad blood, that there's this, mm-hmm. and I understand that under cer- certain circumstances that can definitely be the case for some people and yeah. some people's stories, but I just really love and appreciate that I get to still have you and I get to still have your family and that we're close and that it's not affected by that. I think it takes a lot of maturity 
and healing to be able to come to that place for a lot of people. But I love that it's a unique aspect to our story and and interesting because not a lot of people have that, I think. I know. I mean, I think back on like even high school relationships I have where I still like mourn the loss of that family. Yeah. Um, you know, whoever the guy was that I was dating because I just loved the family so much. Mm. So I'm really grateful that we are not normal in that aspect. And like we have maintained a relationship and it's not just transactional. It's not just like you drop your kid off and then peace out. See you in two weeks. It's like, yeah. you know, we have deep conversations. We have a relationship. We have a friendship, a sister ship, <laughs> like a yeah. sisterhood, bond, <laughs> whatever it is. Like, I'm still glad that we have it because you're right. It's not, it's not typical by any means. Yeah. And that's so true. I feel like there are so many different relationships that we gain throughout our lives. And it's really difficult. I think that's maybe the hardest part about life in general is just the relationships that we, that we gain and that we nurture and that we enjoy. And then at some point organically, they just sort of disintegrate. Yeah. It's something really difficult that I'm having to teach my daughter that a lot of times, even these new friendships that you become so Mm-hmm. strongly adhered to suddenly as a third grade girl, you know, there's drama and cattiness yeah. already. And it's so sad. Yeah. I feel like it's just, that's a really tough lesson throughout life that right. there are some things that die. There are some things that we have to let die and let go and, and somehow be able mm-hmm. to go on. But this is not one of those things that I'm really grateful. So I want to know about your religious journey. And you're up. If you feel comfortable sharing anything about that, you want to tell me any sort of aspects of that part of your life and how that influences you now. Oh man, I feel like we're just about to like go on a roller coaster. (laughs) It's such a long story. I'll try and keep it a little shorter. So, my religious journey and my upbringing. So, we'll start with my upbringing. I mean, mom and dad are different religions. And when we were growing up, it was, it was hard because, because of the religious differences, my parents expected different things from us and had different standards on different areas of life. And so even on like the simplest thing, take clothing, for example, you know, there was one parent who cared if you showed your shoulders and the other one who didn't same thing with my niece. And so little things like that, a lot of times it felt like I had to be someone different for each of my parents. And at that point, I, you know, already so young, had no idea that I was just losing myself. I was just falling into people pleasing tendencies. And I so much wanted to be part of mom's religion, which is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And another nickname for that is Mormons. So I really wanted to be a Mormon. I really wanted to join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I saw my friends getting baptized at eight and found myself feeling left out. Most of my friends came from mom's church. And so I think for me, why I was so drawn to it, it was because it was community. It was mm-hmm. community. Based. It was like, yeah. That's where my friends are. I, I want to be with my friends. I want to be like my friends. And I was homeschooled. And so I was like, there's nothing that I'm the same with anybody else on. Like, I just wanted to, to have a place of belonging and dad is Southern Baptist. And so 
that dynamic in and of itself, I mean, those two religions just like don't mesh very well. Right. And so growing up, going to church with dad every Sunday, like he, you know, felt very called by God to bring us up in the way that he thought was best. And I, as a parent now, I totally respect that. I'm like, okay, I get why you felt responsible. You know, for him, it was a matter of like, I'm going to stand before God one day and be held accountable for how I raised my children. And I need to do it in the way that I feel best about. Mm. I get that now as an adult, as a child though, I was like pissed off, you know? Sure. I'm like, why can't you let me choose? Why don't I get a say in this? Why don't I get to, to have a choice? And it wasn't until we were 18 that we were quote unquote allowed to get baptized if we wanted to be baptized outside of his church. And so I, I spent my teenage years calling myself a Mormon, even though I wasn't baptized. And most of my friends were Mormon. The boys I dated were Mormon. The ideals and values that I held were Mormon. So I was really enveloped in the community and in the culture, especially even before I understood any of the doctrine. Mm -hmm. There was very little doctrine that was accessible to me because dad didn't want it to be accessible to me until I was older to really understand it. But by the time I was older and had a chance to like understand the doctrine, I was already so enveloped in the culture and community that it wouldn't have mattered if the doctrine didn't make sense at all my identity was already locked in. Right. So even when I was starting to learn things doctrine wise that I may or may not at the time disagreed with or agreed with, I was still like, oh, but it's going to be okay. Like, it'll be fine. I just kind of brushed it under the rug and didn't know at the time how to listen to myself and my own intuition and how things really sat with my soul. I mean, so many layers and layers and layers of self-betrayal that I just was so unaware of. Yeah. And really forcing myself to fit into a mold because I wanted so badly to be accepted and to feel like I had a place to belong that I wouldn't even let myself question anything that would kind of remove me from the identity that I had already decided upon. And So I became a missionary. I went out, I taught people all about this doctrine and still had those people pleasing perfectionist tendencies and hated myself the whole time I was a missionary because I could never live up to these unrealistic expectations and standards that I had soaked in and adopted and placed on myself and had other people place on me. But I found so much joy in being that story. I'm trying to think of like, a metaphor or an analogy, not necessarily like the underdog, but it's like people talk about pioneers in the church and they have so much pride in the fact that everyone just suffered. Yeah. Be in Salt Lake City. They were just like, they take so much pride that their ancestors died on the plains and suffered through it all. And so I took so much pride in having to work so hard and burn out and suffer And, you know, be the miracle story that people talk about. Like, I was the one that the missionaries found and was ready to be baptized in a month. I was the golden investigator. And and I just found so much pride in being like, I fought so hard in my life to get to where I am today. Like, I really took on that identity of like, I've done it, you know? And I kept that throughout my whole mission. And even into college, when I got back from my mission, 
I was like even more into the culture. I'm like, I felt weird showing my knees again, coming back from being a missionary and right. having hurts below my knees all the time and never showing my shoulders and having gone to the temple and really being so hard on myself. I came back and I like felt weird holding a boy's hand and had to practice with my boyfriend after and like try not to squirm and cringe because when you're a missionary, they tell you like not to have any physical contact at all with men, unless it's like a handshake. So like no hugs, you could have a handshake, but it was just like everything else for that whole year and a half or two years when you're a guy is like, you can't have any feelings for anyone. You have to be wholeheartedly like deep into the doctrine and deep into the culture. And I get it. Like it's a full-time job. That's what you're signing up for. And at the same time, like post-mission, I see how much that ingrained in me even more the modesty, the purity culture. Mm, and I became yes. even more uncomfortable with my sexuality and my sensuality because anything that was even remotely romantic, I had it had just been drilled into me that it was wrong. And so then to come back from a mission and try and flip this switch of like, okay, now it's time to like go off and find my eternal companion. And I was like uncomfortable giving a guy a hug because I'd been told, you know, and my subconscious had kind of soaked it up that it was a bad thing to have physical contact with a guy after I'd been taught my entire youth, you know, it's bad thing to have passionate physical contact with a guy. So post mission, I ended up going to Brigham Young University, Hawaii. And they have an honor code, you know, they've got a dress code and you abide by certain standards and you sign it, like you agree to live by that code of conduct while you're in school. And so even people who aren't members of the church can go to that school as long as they agree to abide by the honor code. Mm -hmm. But I had a really hard time abiding by the honor code. Oh, there's just so many facets to the story. I'm like trying to figure out what to tie in. But a lot of it comes back to like sensuality and sexuality and how that wasn't something that I got to experience and experiment with growing up and in my late teens and college years. So I really struggled with the honor code in particular because I was struggling with an addiction to pornography. And it was something that I'd struggled with before becoming a missionary. And I didn't really think that it was that bad, you know? Until I was in college and I realized that I was using this as a coping mechanism. Here was a quote unquote safer way of experimenting and finding my myself, my body, my sexuality without technically breaking the worse rules, mm -hmm. the, you know, the more important rules of like expressing that sexuality and sensuality with another human, having a physically intimate relationship. It was really hard for me to break out of this idea that it was better for me to like be addicted to something, to pornography, mm. better for me to be focused on that all day long. And like pornography literally like creates unhealthy pathways in your brain. Like it changes the chemistry in your brain. And it literally takes, I think they said like three years to rewire the pathways in your brain. And so for me, I was like operating on a brain that wasn't what it was supposed to be and trying to live up to these standards and belief that like it would have been just as bad as murdering another human being for me to have sex with someone outside of marriage. And it was so hard 
because here I was like going to this school and everyone thought I was so great and so perfect. And, you know, I was still holding that identity of like, I've worked so hard to get here. I've overcome so much. And I did, like I had overcome so much, but I was still kind of stuck in this victim mentality of like, oh, well, I, I suffered from abuse as a child. So all of this makes sense. And like, it's okay. Mm. It really wasn't okay. It wasn't okay that I didn't have a space to like explore who I was in a place that was emotionally safe for me to do that. Mm. And it wasn't okay for me to like have gone through so much self-betrayal in the name of these standards that I had such a hard time keeping up with. Like I hated myself so much for not being able to maintain these standards and couldn't understand why I couldn't keep them. And I started to give myself permission to explore my sexuality and not in like a typical way. Like I didn't go out and like start dating all sorts of different people. And like, I didn't go out and like have one night stands and things like that. It was just a matter of like, from an emotional standpoint, where did I feel good in relationship with people? What made me feel alive? What made me feel like me? And the purity culture, it really had to go because the way that it was attached to my relationship with God kind of destroyed my relationship with God. I was in so much loathing and hatred of myself and my physical body. And I knew that in and of itself was in, what's the word? Opposition. Yeah. Like that's not what God would have wanted for me either. Yeah. It directly goes against the whole sort of idea. It's the antithesis of the point that you're supposed to be loved by God unconditionally. And yet there are so many conditions. Yes, exactly. And in the last year, year and a half, I really let myself step out of those conditions and kind of test the waters. And well, even before that. So let's see, let me back up just a little bit. My addiction to pornography, it took a couple of years for me to like really overcome that. I was going to addiction recovery program every single week on campus. And it was kind of like this hush hush thing. And I was like the only girl in the room because you're not supposed to be sexual as a girl. You're not supposed to struggle with pornography or masturbation and having that as an addiction as a girl. You're not supposed to sex as much as a boy when you're a girl. And so I'd show up and I would be the only girl in the room. And most everyone else was also struggling with pornography addictions. There was the occasional like, you know, alcohol or drug addiction, but most of it was like all of us. Yeah. Which is really interesting because like you go to other places in the world and it's not like that, but it's like we were so kept from experimenting and expressing ourselves physically with another person out of fear that, you know, the worst thing in the world could happen and you could get pregnant with someone that you love. Right. And you wouldn't be prepared because no one had prepared you how to be in a relationship with someone, be in relationship with them. And so after I was able to overcome my addiction to pornography, a big part of that was dating, like finding a human, an actual human to be in relationship with. Like imagine that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it ended up being my now husband. And, you know, we were a little frisky um, when, (laughs) when I was in college and 
But what's so great about him, like he was so respectful, like he'd never dated anyone in the church. And so when he met me, we matched on Tinder. And then the first time he met me, we like went out to dinner and he didn't even know if he could hug me. Like he was just like following my lead on everything because he was just trying to be as respectful as possible, oh. which is just like so sweet and kind. And eventually, you know, we were like making out hard in the car. And there came a point when because I was so guilt ridden all the time and convinced that I had to talk to other people about my struggles or what I perceived at the time as my struggles of like, oh my gosh, like I can't keep my hands off of my boyfriend and soon to be fiance, like yeah, a problem, right? It's a problem that we're connecting so well physically and I can't control myself and it, just so silly now that I think back to it. But because we were having a hot and heavy relationship outside of marriage and I was a student, technically I was breaking honor code, even though we never had like full penetrative sex. Like I was breaking honor code and I was like, so filled with guilt and shame. And so I went and talked with our church leader and this was after we were married. I talked to my previous church leader and was like, Hey, we're really, I'm really struggling with this. You know, after everything I'd gone through, he was like, okay, well, like don't take the sacrament. Like you're not worthy to do that right now. And I was like, totally get it. Totally understand. And he said, like, after you're married, like, come back and talk to your bishop and see, you know, what's up. So, like, after we were married, I went to my bishop and was like, look, we really struggled before we were married with this. Like, what's the protocol for this? And he's like, oh, my gosh, I don't know. Like, let me get back to you. So then I had, like, a disciplinary council where this group of men got to decide whether or not I was worthy to maintain my membership in the church and remain a student because I had a pattern or a habit of towing the line, just crossing the line. But especially now with my husband, you know, it had happened multiple times that we'd, you know, gone past first base. Mm -hmm. And this bishop, he was really loving and very, very kind. And he was like, here's what we're going to do. He's like, I'm not going to report it to the school at all. You just withdraw for a year and just, you know, say it's a sabbatical essentially, like just you know, say you need to address some personal things and you're taking leave and you can come back. That way it's not on your school record that you like got kicked out per se for breaking the honor code. And that way you can come back and finish your degree. Cause I was one semester away from graduating mm. semester. And so that's what happened is like, I took a break from school for a year. It was almost a year and a half. And during that time, like I got pregnant with Mateo and birthed him. And then did my final semester of college. And then the pandemic hit. And then we moved to Michigan. And now three years later, we are still here in Michigan. But two years in, I really started to recognize I felt better when we weren't going to church. Like when everything was shut down, I was like, wow, it feels so nice to like not have to pretend to be someone that I'm not. Yeah. And I started exploring that so much. And it was like, how long have I been pretending to be someone I'm not? Mm. I've been doing therapy for years, like since I was 14. I did therapy in college. I'd had some really bad experiences where like I didn't get to consent to sexual relationships and advances by previous boyfriends and by strangers in public and in private. And so my whole relationship with church and sexuality, specifically like how I express myself physically, how I dress, that idea that like, how I dress is an invitation for other people to take advantage of me. You know, like it's my fault if a guy has bad thoughts. 
And like as a recovered pornography addict, that's not accurate. A man's not responsible for the dirty thoughts that I'm having. It doesn't matter like how short his shorts are or how good he looks shirtless. Like as a woman, like I take full responsibility for my thoughts and my actions. No one else is to blame. Right. And so unpacking all of that, all of the trauma and the abuse and the purity culture. Last year, I also started to like unpack the doctrine and finding things that, well, it wasn't even finding them. It was really just owning the fact that there were so many things that I was living out of alignment with and trying to convince myself that it was just part of the church. That saying like the church is perfect, but the people aren't. I'm like, bullshit. (laughs) Like the church is not perfect and neither are the people. And for us to pretend that everything in this doctrine and everything in this church history is perfect and called of by God. I mean, in the Old Testament, David like literally had a man killed so that he could be with his wife. Yeah. And then he became a king and a prophet. It's like, if that's the standard we're going off of, I really started to question like, do I even want to read the Bible to my children? Yeah. Do I want to teach them at such a young age that, you know, Nephi in the Book of Mormon was told like, go chop Laban's head off. I'm God. I'm telling you to go chop someone's head off because I want you to save other people. It's just, it sort of breeds this aggressiveness, this violence that's unnecessary. I mean, yes, there are some very ethical questions that come into play, but aside from what you're mentioning and what you've referenced in scripture, there's also, you know, more modern revelations that have come to this church saying that people of color have a Mm -hmm. curse and that their skin is dark because they're cursed because that's what this book says. People who are black can't hold the priesthood, can't have the same rights as everybody else. But now that things have changed sort of in the culture, not the church culture, but in modern culture and black people are afforded a little more equality. They've now changed the doctrine. I mean, it's just so ingrained deeply. There are so many different things aside from the fact that there's, you know, been discoveries about like child marriage and all Mm -hmm. sorts of really murky, yucky Mm -hmm. things. At the end of the day, it just, it does call into question your ethics personally. And is this something I want my child exposed to, do I want my child to grow up, even if that's not what they're being taught in their primary programs, they're being taught, follow the prophet, follow the prophet, don't go astray, follow the prophet, just blindly follow, forsake self and follow. Yeah. That in and of itself is troublesome, but yeah, someday do I want my kid to grow up and be more cognizant, be more aware of these beliefs and say, that's what my mom believes. That's what my mom adheres to. Mm -hmm. And I have a very similar story to you. It's interesting that you grew up in this culture in Michigan because it's not very present here. Like out in in Idaho, that's a very strong church presence. Whereas here it's not so much, but the church is so good at community and craving that is so valid. I feel that now on a deep level that I wish at times that I could still be part of it just because you become 
so enmeshed and you have a place and you belong. I've belonged to multiple presidencies. I've been in the young women's presidency. I've been in the primary, the children's presidency and feeling that sense of pride of Mm -hmm. I am worthy enough that I have been named like a Mm -hmm. member of a presidency. Like this is where I belong in the family of things in this church. And it's very clear, like I hold a very prominent calling. And so that must mean that I'm very, I'm very worthy. I'm very whatever, honorable. And yeah, I would have to sit in these Sunday school classes and teach young women and men. I had to go off of this, this rule book. I had to prepare my lessons based off of a standardized handbook. And there were oftentimes questions, difficult questions from these kids. And because I did not believe the doctrine fully, mm-hmm. I had to tell them it's going to work out. It's going to be okay. It was kind of like how you said, there are things that you just sort of go along with a- after mm-hmm. a while, even if it doesn't resonate truly with you, even if it's not truly your belief, you just sort of accept it and gloss over it, brush it under the rug. I had a girl whose parents had divorced and were sealed in the temple for time and all eternity and then divorced and then got resealed to someone else. She asked, what happens in eternity then? Where do I belong? Hmm. Nobody has these questions because there's a one size fits all container Hmm. for how this works. Divorce is not encouraged. Divorce is not encouraged. Yes. But it happens a Mm -hmm. lot. 50% of all marriages. And so this young girl is curious what's going to happen. And no one has any kind of answers because the church is not built for that. And yet we're human. We get divorces. We have sensuality. We have sexuality. We have cravings. We have appetites. And not to say that denying these things is unnecessary, because I think at times there are benefits to challenging ourselves, to growth, to say, obviously, we don't give in to every single one of our indulgences or else it would be a lot of really serious health issues and problems. But to say that we deny ourselves, I just, I think that there's a a foundational issue with that. Mm -hmm. And it's it's at a soul level and we feel it when, when we're being told that we're bad for feeling natural human feelings. Yeah. My story is similar to yours in the way that you and I basically grew up together. I married your brother when I was 19. I grew up with you and the siblings in the house. I met your brother and you at your dad's church mm-hmm. and ended up converting to your mom's church. And yeah. It's a complicated, it's a complicated story, but I, I feel the same way that you did. When the pandemic hit in 2020, it was March, I had already drank alcohol at a mm-hmm. wedding like a couple weeks before that my neighbors had a wedding and it was horrible your brother and i had separated the september before in 2019 and we both went to this wedding together and i was distraught like i don't know what part of me 
thought it was a good idea to go to a wedding after like that close to being separated in the process of getting a divorce with said person, but I was a wreck. And so I had alcohol. I made a decision, a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine who was my neighbor at the time offered me some. And I was like, there's just that moment, you know, you're on a precipice, you're on the cusp, you're in a threshold. And you're like, this is a decision that's going to take me from here to there. And if I take this drink of alcohol, if I do this thing, if I give into this worldly Mm -hmm. vice, I'm going to have to repent somehow. And not just to God, not just in the privacy of my own home, but I'm going to have to report it to a middle-aged man in the church. And Mm -hmm. he's going to have to decide my fate. He's going to have to decide to determine where you stand with God. Yes. On behalf of God, he is going to come up with some sort of punishment. And Mm -hmm. I had determined at that point that that was not something I was going to be interested in. I don't feel like I owe anything to anybody else. It was a decision that I had made. And then the pandemic hit and I was in a primary presidency at that time. And it was such a relief because there had been weeks and months and days leading up to that point where my partner now was somebody that I strongly advocated for and who was not allowed or accepted in church in the same way that everybody else is just for being themselves. That and LGBTQ issues on top of the lessons that my daughter was receiving plus Mm -hmm. the patriarchal. I just, there were so many times when I just had to white knuckle whatever they were saying and just Mm -hmm. like my mouth Mm -hmm. shut and just, and after a while, it's like, I don't know that this is resonating with me anymore. This is not where I belong. I I want to belong, but Mm -hmm. I don't belong here anymore. And so the pandemic was a welcome relief. And that was the point in which I, I stepped away. Yeah. How do you view modesty now? How has this experience shaped both your marriage and Mm. your parenthood, the way that you are raising your two boys? How does this influence? How does this whole experience influence both how you entered this relationship then and then also how you? (laughs) Yeah. So, how I viewed modesty in the past was you know, this is what's going to determine like what makes me attractive to the type of man that I want. Mm. Right. And so for me, it was like, I remember right before my mission, I went to the temple and, you know, I went through the rituals there. And part of the rituals is receiving an additional layer of clothing to wear called garments. You know, like so many different religions have different articles of clothing that they wear as a representation of their belief. And in the church, it's garments and you wear them under your clothing you know, they cover your body a little bit more than you're generally used to, unless you've been dressing your whole life in a manner such to where you don't have to clean out half of your wardrobe afterwards. <laughs> I had not been doing that because I'd grown up, you know, in my parents' home where like I couldn't wear tank tops and I couldn't wear short shorts. So when I moved out, I like got tank tops and I got short shorts and I got tight dresses and low cut in the back dresses and felt so much freedom in being able to express myself through my clothes. And then I still decided to go on a mission. And so I went through the temple and got garments and was so sad that I had to get rid of my favorite clothes. And then I was like, oh, well, you know, it's okay. Like 
I'm finally being modest. You know, it's, it's my time. My time has come to be a woman and I'm going to cover my shoulders because that's what makes me a good godly woman. Mm. And then I came back for my mission and I went to BYU Hawaii and they had the same dress code. And even beyond that, like you couldn't wear leggings on campus. Like I got sent home one time from campus because I had on a t-shirt that was a V-neck and maybe showed, I don't know, three inches from my collarbone to my chest. And I had leggings on, but I had like a flannel shirt tied around my waist. So you couldn't even see my butt. And I got sent home for that outfit and was told, sister, you need to go and, you know, review your outfit and see if it really matches the guidelines that you've agreed to keep something along those lines. WTF. (laughs) What is this? And a teacher tried to send me home one time because I was wearing black jeans that were too tight and they thought they were leggings. And I'm like, no, they have pockets and a zipper. And she was like, that matters. I mean, right. Like that's, I know I was like, okay, so I'm going to convince her out of sending me home from class because I have pockets on my pants. It's just like so ridiculous. Anyway, and I was going to school in Hawaii. It's like fetching hot, right? Like I'm already wearing like the least amount of clothing that I possibly can. And it's still not good enough. And technically you're like not even allowed to wear a bikini at school. Like you can get kicked out of school if you wear a bikini and someone from honor code hears about it. And anyway. Which, by the way, is the only outfit that I can wear when I'm visiting Hawaii. I literally walk around in a swimsuit exclusively, and that is it because it's so hot and humid. Good Lord. Yeah, it is. It's hot and it's humid and it's wet and it's so to to wear garments at all is sort of uncomfortable and burdensome and adds an extra bulky layer. But to have to Mm -hmm. do that in Hawaii, (laughs) it's yeah. Because of the abuse I'd had growing up, sexual abuse, like my relationship with my body was already strained Yeah, and put on top of that, like I was a ballet dancer. So that's like another layer of like body dysmorphia and food dysmorphia, eating disorder tendencies. I'd, I'd struggled with all of it. Mm-hmm. And so then to be told like your body's only good enough to be seen when you're covered from your shoulders to your knees, nothing else can be seen. It was already a struggle. It was a challenge for me to wear them and to feel happy and blessed to wear them because it was a sign that I had these promises with God. And that's what showed that I was in good standing. When I started dating my husband, who was not a member of the church at the time, I started letting myself experiment with how I felt wearing more revealing clothing. And literally by more revealing, I mean, like I showed my shoulders or like I you know, got a bikini or I got a low cut swimsuit. And I started recognizing like, I felt so much more me when I had the choice over what I got to wear. And I know people were like, well, you had the choice on whether or not to wear garments. You had the choice on whether or not to go to school. And I get that. I had that overarching choice. I did. But because of the conditioning that I'd gone through, it did not feel like it was a choice. It felt like I could either choose to continue this identity or I couldn't change at all. And I would have to completely lose my identity and my community along with it, which I mean, kind of over time is exactly what happened. Like I would rather jump off of the boat than, than drown with it and sink. Yeah. Yeah. But my husband didn't have a problem with me wearing these clothes. It wasn't a thing for him to judge me because it was normal to see my shoulders. Like it was normal to, you know, see my thighs and see my belly at a beach My husband and I have had a lot of challenges, but one thing that I'm really grateful for him for is that he has given me a lot of space to explore and discover who I really am. Yeah. 
in and outside of the church, in and outside of purity culture and how I expressed myself with my clothes, even though <laughs> my favorite color to wear is neon pink and he hates it because it draws <laughs> attention to us. But even then, like, he'll be like, are you, are you wearing that out? And I'm like, absolutely. I am. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Cause if I bring attention to me and he's standing next to me, then, you know, he gets undue attention that he doesn't want. And I get that. But he still is like, now he's gotten to the point where he's like, you know what, wear whatever you want, like whatever makes you feel good. And so during the pandemic, I moved back to Michigan and into the same house as my parents. And so it was like, I was confronted with this new version of myself now living under the same roof as my parents. And part of me reverted to that childhood part. So I'm like, oh, like my parents are here. Like it's the parent-child relationship. And how am I going to be me here with them. Mm. And so it really, the last three years have been imperative and crucial for me to really gain acceptance for who I am, even if my parents don't agree with how I live my life. Yes. And, and it hasn't been terrible. Like they recognize that I'm an adult now. And so they're not like questioning my clothing choices. They're not questioning my parenting choices. Last year in July, I did a hypnotherapy session and really dove deep into purity culture, which I was not expecting. And so about a month and a half after my hypnosis session, I woke up one morning and realized that having sex outside of marriage is not as bad as murder. And like had really internalized that. And I was like, oh, wow, I've been carrying all of this guilt and all of this shame for having a beautiful, like physically wonderful connection with my husband before I was married. And I don't have to do that anymore. Mm. I don't have to feel guilty that we have a beautiful physical connection. I don't have to feel like, you know, I was this close to eternal damnation because I used my body in a way that it was literally meant to be used for. Like our bodies literally have sex organs to create life. Mm. Why wouldn't we be able to do that with someone we love whether or not there's someone who has quote unquote authority to say that we can do that with or without a piece of paper, it has opened up the floodgates for me to recognize that like my worth is inherent outside of what I wear. And it's also welcomed me into like this new space where like, I am like now wearing mini skirts and like braless tops and low cut shirts in the front and the back and short shorts and crop tops. And I'm doing it in front of my parents and they don't love me any less. Yeah. And I love myself more and more the more that I do that mm. because I'm finally getting this opportunity to, to choose what I get to wear and how I show up to the world, not based off of anybody else's rules, but based off of my own inherent values and ideals. Yeah. And so when it comes to like raising my children in this environment, or outside of this environment, however you want to look at it. Because as I've stepped away from the church, my husband has not. And I fully respect that for him. And I love that for him, that he still finds comfort in certain aspects. It is a very personal relationship for him. And so I won't go into too much detail, but even he has things where he's like, well, I don't agree with that. Like, I don't agree with these cultural things. Like one thing he'd have no problem with me sharing this, but like the dating ideals that are encouraged before marriage, like no wonder we have such a struggle. It's like, so the dating ideals are like, 
You don't date until you're 16. And when you're 16, you go on group dates because you don't want to be alone with another individual, Mm. you know, and even then you shouldn't go on frequent dates with the same person until you're older because, you know, heaven forbid you have a really deep connection with someone that could lead to sex outside of marriage. And then, you know, once you reach a certain age, it's like, oh, okay, well now you can be done dating lots and lots of people after you're engaged, but even all the way up until you're engaged, it's encouraged to be dating lots of people at the same time. Yeah. And my husband was like, um, no wonder, like there's so many people who are having like divorces after like months in the church, because if you're holding out to have sex with someone until you're married and you think like that's the worst possible thing you could do. And, you know, you're deep in like the lust, adoration, puppy dog, love, honeymoon stage, and you never get past it before marriage. And you just, you know, you date, you get engaged and you get married all within four months. One, there's a lot of unhealthy things about that. Like, sure, there are people who have really beautiful relationships out of that. And then there are a lot that don't because we're not taught how to express our needs. We're not taught how to get our needs met. We're not taught that our needs are important in the first place. The most important thing is that you meet God's needs. So for all of that to take precedence before your own needs, like no wonder we have so much self-betrayal and no wonder we have such a struggle with marriages mm. and committed relationships because you, we were never taught how to have a committed relationship. And so that's one thing that we're doing with our kids differently is like one, we're not telling them to get baptized at a very young age. Mateo sees me in all of my clothes and doesn't bat an eye. He thinks it's normal. We also let him wear whatever clothes he wants, whether it's cheetah print or hot pink or dinosaurs or trucks. Like he gets to pick out his clothes Mm. and he gets to express himself in that way. He had long hair until he was three and only got it cut off because he asked for it to be cut off. So everyone thought he's a girl. I'm like, okay, so what? But letting our children express themselves and talking about self-expression in a way that's really healthy and, you know, letting them see my body hair, my armpit hair, my belly hair, my leg hair, like talking about sexuality in an age appropriate way. So like Mateo asks like, mommy, where's your penis? And I'm like, oh, well, I don't have one. Mm. And he's like, can I see it? I'm like, no, you can't see my vulva. You can like, just accept that I have one. It's different than yours. Like I'll bring up some diagrams in a couple of years when I feel it's more age appropriate. but teaching him the anatomically correct terms and all the parts of his organs, all of the parts of my organs, and just talking about the human body in a way that does not have shame, Mm. like not shaming him for exploring his own body in a way that's appropriate for when he's three years old. Yeah. Like babies, babies touch themselves. They're exploring their body. I don't want to automatically start conditioning into them. Like, don't touch that. That's dirty. That's gross. That's yucky. That's not for playing with. It's like, I don't know. Like once you become an adult, like it becomes a plaything. Like, see, and that's the thing that's so difficult is when we do have these things rooted in shame, how do we flip a switch? Right. Like suddenly what was bad is now what was shameful is now beautiful. What was there is no way to flip a switch. There is no possible way to completely take all of our inherent ingrained conditioning and transform it overnight. It's harmful. It's damaging. Well, your subconscious brain has picked up all of this conditioning 
like I have multiple friends who have biological reactions when they try to have sex for the first time or the first 15 times or 20 times or 50 times years into their marriage, their body is literally protesting having sex. It is painful for them Mm. because they've been told their whole lives not to do this. It's bad. It's unworthy. It's dirty. But now you're married, so it's fine. Go ahead and get rid of all of that conditioning we've given you for the past 20 years. And let's see how your body responds. Let's see how your subconscious responds. Some people don't have an issue. That's fine. But I know so many women who do where they literally can't have sex without pain because their body has internalized it as dangerous. Mm. And so now they're wanting to avoid it and they're missing out on this beautiful connection with their partners because their subconscious has to undo all of that conditioning to believe that this is safe. It's beautiful. It's a sacred connection. Like it is deep. And you can experience that outside of marriage. Mm. My husband and I have both determined that like, we will not tell our children to, in general, like we would like them to be responsible about their sexual relationships, right? Like I don't, I don't love the idea of my children, like going out and impregnating a bunch of other humans. Let's be responsible about it. But like, let's not shame them for having a desire to connect with another human being when it's an age appropriate time, right? Like when you've kind of like grown out of your adolescence and your brain is more fully developed to be able to handle those chemical reactions in your body that will cause emotional reactions or vice versa. Mm. But talking about it in a way that is open and free of shame and like biologically supportive, talking about dopamine and oxytocin and adrenaline and yeah. the side of things, love and compassion and connection and chemistry, like really letting those be beautiful things. And having our children see us have healthy physical connections, like holding hands and kissing and cuddling and hugging and having them see us have healthy conflict and talk about things that are uncomfortable, watching us repair. Like, I think all of those are things that are going to support them in their relationships in the future, as well as encouraging them to realize that they have their own needs. They can ask for them to be met and also recognizing that other people have needs. Yes. Recognizing how to meet them. If you have a desire to extend yourself to do that, amazing. And if you don't, you need to recognize that. You Mm. need to recognize that you can't promise everybody the world if you're not willing to deliver it or even try. And talking about consent, like very early on talking about, you know, I've got two boys who are very rowdy sometimes and I have one who can't speak yet entirely, but we talk about no noises. Like, oh, like sounds like your little brother doesn't like that you're squishing his face. That's a no noise. That mm-hmm. means we step back and give him some space. You can ask if he wants a hug. You can ask if he wants a cuddle or some tickles. Asking and respecting boundaries. When we're tickling our oldest and he says, stop that, we stop immediately. And we say, okay, we stopped. Like, I hear you. Or if, you know, we're carrying him in a certain way, or if he just doesn't want to cuddle, we give him space. And we've encouraged that from other adults in our lives. My parents, my husband's parents, you ask for a hug. You ask if someone wants that. And if you don't want it, you can say no. You can say no whenever you want. Even if you liked it 10 minutes ago and you don't like it now, like there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to be coerced or punished with physical contact or lack thereof. 
I think Uh it's so difficult for that generation too. I think a lot of times they were raised in a mindset of when you leave a family gathering, you go hug everybody. I know I had to leaving Christmas. There's a house full of people that I see exactly one time per year. I don't know these people. I don't want to hug them. It does not feel comfortable for me to relent and put my body against someone else's body. And yet I'm forced to do it. So now when family members come over, there are specific ones who will say, I bought you this. And my daughter will say, great, thank you. And there's been times when they say, now I need a hug. And it's teaching transactional yuckiness. I'm like, I don't know. There's a scientific word for that. That's just gross. Transactional physical. It's like a physical transaction. Yes. Right. Well, you're telling me or your body, you're teaching my daughter that if somebody gives you something, you have to give them something in return. Even if it's not, yes, you owe them. Even if it's not something that you're comfortable with, even if you didn't ask for that. Right. You didn't ask for this thing, but they're like, but I got it for you. So you owe me. Exactly. And how toxic, this is the thing that's been very difficult to try to translate to people in my family that are close to me is that it's not necessarily that she doesn't like you. Yeah. Not giving you a hug is not a slight. It is her creating boundaries and taking power over one of the few things that kids actually have power over in their lives and being able to say, I don't want to do this. I don't feel comfortable with it. And knowing that that translates, it's a very difficult concept because grandparents don't think that they're being predatory. No, Mm. it's not necessarily you that's being a predator. However, in the future, if there was somebody that was doing this exact same thing for my daughter, in fact, I know of a primary teacher that my daughter had at one point that would give the kids candy in exchange for a kiss. It's gross. It's <sighs> violating. It's that it's not okay because there are times down the road that our kids are going to need to be able to say no, are going to need to be able to hear the very physical, sensational alarms going off in their bodies to be able to say, this is not a situation that I am comfortable in. This is not a situation I want to be in. I do not feel comfortable doing this. And that could help prevent them from sexual abuse. Not saying that this is uh, the end all to be all. However, I can count on multiple hands how many situations I've been in as a people pleaser, as that person that was forced to hug every single person at the party that then grew up to feel obligated to give in to advances of other people and forsake my body, even though I felt gross, even though I felt that this is something I did not want to do. I did not have the voice or the capability to say no, because I was never taught to. And it's important that these things are taught from an early age, like you're saying, because it gives our kids the tools later on that they need to be armed with. Mm -hmm. 
And it's really interesting too. I'm thinking about the other side of it that I have struggled with as a survivor of sexual abuse, where now that I do get a say and when I get to, you know, initiate physical intimacy, whether it's platonic or romantic, for me, it's been a matter of like learning that it is safe to have physical contact in the first place Mm. that I get to choose that I get to initiate, that I get a say in it rather than expecting someone else to take the lead. And so this is something that we've really had to work on in our marriage, actually, because my husband loves physical contact. It's one of his top love languages is physical intimacy. And whether that be a hug or a high five or a cuddle or like, you know, a rubbing of the arm as I walk past and compliment him or something like that, it has not come naturally to me because I've I've shied away from it so much from the abuse and the trauma and also the conditioning of like, don't touch another person. It's bad, you know, might lead to some feisty things. That's true. Yes. And so I see, I see the harm in teaching only about physical intimacy in the mindset of with a romantic partner, rather than teaching about like the beauty of like platonic cuddles like sleepovers, like you want to snuggle with your sister, right? Like I love snuggling with you. We don't really get an opportunity to do that anymore because not as much children, (laughs) but like I loved a good sleepover where I could just like snuggle up next to you or, you know, other friends, but teaching them like healthy platonic physical intimacy and how important that's going to be for our kids. But I can't even say like, especially my boys, because no, especially for girls too. Like Letting any of them be the one to make the choice is what's important about it. Yeah. And letting them know like they have the power to have deep, wonderful physical connections with another person without automatically assuming that means it's going to lead to sex. That's one thing for me I've really had to unprogram is this idea that my husband only expects sex. So when he comes up behind me to give me a hug and some snuggles, like if I'm not in the mood, I automatically got defensive. Yeah, Because my, my conditioning led me to believe like, oh, physical intimacy only leads to sex. So unless you're in the mood for it, like you can't have any contact at all. And that's been really harmful to recognize and to see the impact on our marriage. And then it's been hard. It's been so hard to undo it. And so I want to make sure my kids don't even have to do that. I want them to believe you can just cuddle someone and that be it. You can just kiss someone and that be it. You knew nothing at all and still have a really deep, emotionally intimate relationship. And how much different the world would be if all children were taught so early on that having these physical relationships, platonic or romantic, were beautiful and wonderful and nothing to be ashamed of. And again, it goes back to like leading people back to their bodies, to their voice. Like you talk about like those alarms that you feel in your system when you don't feel comfortable. You feel gross and icky when you self-betray. Yeah. And that's as simple as giving someone a hug when you don't want to and you give in to the pressure anyway. I'm excited for our kids to grow up learning how to trust themselves and their bodies and their intuition rather than relying on what everybody else has told them that they need to do with their bodies in order to be worthy of acceptance into society. Yeah. No, that is so valid. And I also feel like a lot of this that you're mentioning reminds me also of not just church standards or or church culture, not just conservative religion or purity, but also our society. Like how many times have we been told as a joke that men that we're in relationships with 
start off a back rub, but they have ulterior motives. Exactly. Exactly. And it becomes sort of a joke like, oh, I can only get a foot rub when I'm expected to put out or, and just how toxic that is. And knowing, yes, that what you're saying is love has many forms and all of them are beautiful and it doesn't have to be like a one size fits all situation and just maintaining integrity around it and keeping strong boundaries and also respect for yourself and for others and being conscious is so important. And, and passing that down is invaluable. Tell me about your work. Let's tie it back in a little bit. You mentioned at the beginning, but tell me what work you do and how this relates to this. And then also tell me any kind of events that you have going on, anything you want to plug. Now's your chance. I'd love to give you the plug. Yeah. So the work that I do is very multifaceted, but again, it comes back to like leading you back to your body, leading you back to living your life in a way that is authentic to you, helping you release the need to be perfect, helping you release the need or desire to people please and learn how to please yourself, take care of yourself, live your life and show up the way to your life that you want to. And not because someone else has told you that that's the proper or appropriate way to do it. Stop shooting on yourself from other people's rule books of their lives and live by your own. And so what I do is I go in and I do a lot of subconscious reprogramming through different types of energy work, through different kinds of subconscious or conscious coaching, like mindset reframing and really kind of finding the root of where this is coming from. You know, for me, for instance, like going back to childhood and looking at like, well, what were you taught about how you could show up as a woman, how you could express yourself physically or emotionally or vocally and helping humans learn how to express themselves the way that they want to and also helping them feel safe doing that. So what's cool about the subconscious mind is it's in charge of 95% of your thoughts, which means it's in charge of pretty much everything that you're doing and your body's just doing it. And you're just going about life based off of your subconscious mind, because from zero to seven, your subconscious mind is determining what life is supposed to look like. And then you repeat the process over and over again. Mm. So depending on your upbringing, zero to seven can look really dicey as an adult trying to recreate these patterns or recreating the environment that you grew up in and were shown the conditions of love mm. and what you what was required of you in order to be loved and to be in belonging and to be in community. And so we go back to those times and we release trapped emotions, unprocessed emotions that are stuck in your body and supporting you repeating the pattern that you no longer want to live and clearing out the emotional baggage and trauma that's keeping you from living your life in a way that feels good to you and authentic to you. So I just, I use body code. I use emotional freedom technique tapping. We do meditation. And I recently went through a hypnotherapy training. And so now I'm working with people with hypnosis and really dropping into the subconscious mind. Cause when we can find those beliefs, the ones that you don't want, the ones that you don't want to be living by the ideas that have been pushing you in the life that you don't want, We find them, we clear them, we get rid of the energy that was supporting them. And then we start to align you with the thoughts that you do want to live by. I feel safe having joy. I feel safe expressing myself. It is safe for me to be a sexual being. It's beautiful for me to enjoy having sex. It's beautiful for me to have pleasure in life. Things like that. 
It's safe for me to come back home to my body. It's safe for me to be in my body. Safe for me to be a woman. So many women do not feel safe to be themselves just because of the things that have happened to generations of women. And getting you aligned with those energetically, getting your subconscious aligned with those energetically. Because when your subconscious is aligned and it's in charge of 95% of what you're doing, imagine if 95% of your being was searching for all of the proof in your life that you have joy and searching for all of the proof in your life that it's safe for you to be a woman. You're going to show up in life and feel safe to experience joy as a woman and to feel safe being seen as a woman and reclaiming your voice, your ability to express yourself, to ask for your needs to be met, to ask for your wants and feel safe in doing so. Helping people release the need to please other people and make other people comfortable first before checking in with themselves and seeing what is comfortable and safe and joyful for them. That's the goal. So that's what I have people do. <laughs> in a nutshell. Oh, that's all. In a nutshell. That's a miracle it. worker. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Everything that you just said resonated in me so strongly. And I feel really glad and really hopeful that you are able to do this work because it seems so hopeless to know how impacted we are between the ages of zero and seven. Yeah. And how powerless were we over that time? And also as parents. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> we're human. I mean, I, I am coming to realize that I have not had good boundaries leading mm -hmm. up to this point. And I am trying really, really hard to maintain boundaries because it felt to me like me having boundaries meant I was a bad mom. I wasn't giving enough of myself when really, when I forsake myself and I do not adhere to strong boundaries, I eventually reach a breaking point because I can only withstand so much stimulation. That's all any of us can do is the very best that we can do. And so I worry about like, what kind of damage have I done up until this point? I mean, in general, I don't adhere to any kind of like old school corporal punishment, yes, or any sort of very obviously abusive, damaging practices. However, there have been times when people near to me have said things that they probably didn't mean to hurt me, but have stuck with me the rest of my life and have impacted the way that I see myself and, and interact with the world. And so just knowing how impactful that is, but also the hope of knowing that you can find good within this, that you can harness this for your best growth, yeah. that you can change the narrative, that you can still be the mother to yourself that you yeah. need, that you can still become the person that you want to become. And it's not a set in stone forever yeah. sort of thing. So I admire the hell out of you. And I really appreciate being in your sphere and knowing you and knowing what you do and being able to have you here to share your knowledge. Tell me where we can get more of you. Yeah. Well, first, thank you. I love you too. I'm so glad you're in my life. It's nice to know that like, no matter what happened to you, like in, in the beginning, you were a victim to your circumstances. And now as an adult, like you have resources and tools to create the life that you want. Every human has access to creating the life that they want. And if you want my support in doing that, 
then you can find me on Instagram. I am Reagan Rios is my Instagram handle. And there's a couple of different ways that I work with people. One way is through one-on-one. I have a year-long program called Year of You, where I talk about opening the doors up to a year of foundational healing, really getting to those, those childhood core wounds and reprogramming your subconscious mind to start finding proof in your life that you are capable of creating the reality of your dreams rather than repeating the process from that zero to seven subconscious programming and releasing the conditioning. Like we get to do that for a whole year. I get to be like your cheerleader as you're changing your life and as you're changing how you show up to your life. So that's one way that I love to work with people. And right now I have four spots left to be able to work with people for a year. And then the other way is I also offer single sessions right now, which is not something that is always set in stone. It's very fluid on whether or not I offer single sessions. And you can find information about that on my Instagram or on my website, which is healingthroughholism.com, which is linked on my Instagram as well. Just like Instagram has pretty much everything. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other capacity I work with people is in group events. And so periodically I offer like healing events locally. And in July, I'm actually offering a weekend retreat called Reclaim because of my lived experience and, you know, the things that I have been trained in and come to personally. I'm guiding women in learning specific healing modalities they can do on themselves to support themselves in reclaiming their voice, reclaiming their body, their life, their pleasure, and giving you the tools, the healing over the weekend to clear out some of that conditioning, to find sisterhood and community and connection with other women who are wanting to do the same, and then giving you tools and a skill set that you get to walk away with and use in your own life to heal yourself mm. and to find the resources, you know, further resources. Like you can use me after the retreat and you also get to heal yourself because for far too long, we've been outsourcing our power to doctors telling us what we can expect from our bodies instead of learning our bodies first. Right. And so my thing is like, there's a fine balance for me between Western and Eastern medicine. And this is that balance of like giving you the power to be the leader in your own healing journey, instead of giving someone else the keys to drive your car, you get to be the driver instead. So that's happening in July, July 14th and 15th in Midland, Michigan. I'm so excited. There are There's 13 spots available. I already have one that got reserved. So there's 14 women that are going to be there, plus me, plus my assistant. So 16 of us joining together for like a deep, emotionally transformational weekend. Like it really will change your life Mm. because you're going to be gaining sisterhood with these women you may or may not have ever met before. And they're going to be seeing you. And we're going to be talking about the things that we want to create in our lives, what you want to create in your life. And now you have this powerhouse set of women to support you and witness you. And from a subconscious standpoint, this is a fun fact. You're 50% more likely to achieve your goals if you share them out loud with another person. Mm. So imagine sharing them out loud to 15 other humans that are there to support you to learn how to heal themselves. Because when you heal yourself, it has a domino effect. And you get to heal everyone else that's in your circle because you're showing up in a way that invites them to show up for themselves in a new way. Every time you hold a boundary with your daughter, you're teaching her that she can do the same as she grows. And it might be painful to 
rework those boundaries, but you're showing her exactly what she is worthy of creating in her own life. Mm-hmm. That she can have boundaries with other people, that she can have a point of, you know, needing to retreat and recharge and that it's okay to not have to be around someone else all the time, that you can get to know yourself without needing someone else to tell you how to do it. So reclaim is all about reclaiming yourself and having the skill set to know how to do it on your own and to have a community to support you in doing it too. Mm, And I am all about it. I love not only that you're able to share your gifts and support people, but also give them the tools and the skill set themselves to be able to take that with them and be able to do it every other day of the year. So thank you so much for this conversation. This has been so good. I appreciate you and I can't wait to see what else you do and what else you come up with. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I just, I love you so much. I, I admire so much about how you mother and how you show up in life. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be on here. So thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks. Thanks.